My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. One day in 1560 BCE, a king of Upper Egypt, Sekenenre Tau, was resting on his knees in the dust. Taken captive by his enemy, the army of the Hyksos, Sekenenre awaited his execution. That morning, the 35-year-old man had shaved his stubble, readied for war, and gone to battle. Things had gone very, very wrong. The execution, when it came, was brutal. An axe struck him full in the forehead, and another above the right eye. The haft of a spear was used to break his nose, and then shatter his left eye socket. Finally, a spear stabbed at his cheeks, and when the king had fallen to the ground, another struck behind his ear. Thus, an anointed king of Upper Egypt, representative of the great god Amun-Re and protector of Thebes, was murdered. Hello, and welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 55, Blood and Thunder. In this episode, the Thebans take revenge on the Hyksos for the murder of their king, and launch an all-out war on the invaders. Under the leadership of a powerful widow queen and a bold king, the Thebans push hard in their desperate bid for independence. With contemporary writings telling the story, our knowledge of Egyptian war has never been so clear. This episode is brought to you by Victor and Miguel. Thank you guys for your support. I hope you and all my listeners enjoy the show. In 1560 BCE, the city of Thebes was in mourning. Sekenenre's attempt to throw off the Hyksos rule had failed in the worst possible way. When the king's body was retrieved from the Hyksos, it was brought south. For his family, this must have been a traumatic event. Forensic examinations of the body showed that his wounds were so severe that brain matter was still encrusted in the wounds. His nose had been squashed to one side, and many of his limbs had become dislocated. What's worse, the body had been left lying in the dust long enough that decomposition had begun before the Thebans could start mummifying him. The result was a hasty burial, but the Thebans did the best they could in the situation. The body was sprinkled with a powder made of aromatic wood, and it was wrapped in a linen shroud covered in Sekenenre's royal titles. He was laid to rest in a tomb west of Thebes, somewhere near the great cemetery at Deir al-Bahari. It seems that most of these preparations were handled by his heir, Kamosa, and, more importantly, 
his widow queen, Ahhotep. Ahhotep was a formidable woman, destined to outlive both her husband and her two sons. Ahhotep was, in the phrasing of my people, a badass. She was greatly respected by her contemporaries, and was remembered as a defender of Egypt. It is to her that we should give the credit for keeping Thebes together when Sekenen Reitao was unexpectedly defeated. Quote, Ahhotep is the one who has accomplished the rights and taken care of Egypt. She has looked after her soldiers. She has guarded her. She has brought back her fugitives and collected together her deserters. She has pacified Upper Egypt and expelled her rebels. End quote. We don't know the details of what Queen Ahhotep did right after Sekenenre died, but we do know that she basically kept Thebes together single-handedly. Kamosa probably wasn't quite ready to rule by the time his father died, so she would have taken a mentor role. She kept the Thebans from falling apart and surrendering, helped organize some small expeditions and expansions to their territory, and eventually brought Kamosa to a position where he felt he was old enough and experienced enough to take action. About three years after his father's death, in 1557, Prince, now King, Kamosa decided to hold a council. A council that is recorded on a stela. The matter at hand was the war. Should they resume the fight, or maintain the uneasy peace which had settled after his father's bloody execution? The king recorded these deliberations on a pair of limestone stelae, set up in the great temple of Karnak at Thebes. Dedicated to the great god Amun, they record, supposedly in Carmos's own words, the situation after the death of Sekenenre. Carmos's opinion comes first, and he does not mince words. Quote, Let me understand, what is the strength of mine for? One prince is in Avaris, another is in Nubia, and here I sit, associated with an Asiatic and a Nubian. Each man has his slice of my Egypt, dividing up the land with me. None can pass through the land, even if it is Egyptian water. See, he even has Memphis and the city of Thoth. No man can settle down when despoiled by the taxes of the Asiatics. I will grapple with him that I may rip open his belly. My wish is to save Egypt and to smite the Asiatic. The Theban court was understandably in a bit of an unsettled state, and not everyone was on board with further warfare. Some courtiers advocated for peace. These opinions each had their own merits. The Hyksos were not oppressive rulers, even if they were vicious on the battlefield. And they seemed to have made various trade deals with their allies. Theban landowners, for example, were allowed to put their cattle herds to pasture in regions of the western delta, which was the very heart of Hyksos territory. For courtiers like these, a peace, no matter how unjust, was better than the uncertainty and viciousness of war. Quote, we are doing all right with our part of Egypt. Elephantine is strong, and the populace is with us as far as Kos to the north. Their free land is cultivated by us. Our cattle have not been seized and have not been eaten. He has the land of the Asiatics, and we have Egypt. Only when one comes who acts against us should we act against him. End quote. That's a fair argument if you're just talking about dividing the country up between two equal powers. 
But the catch is quite simple. Egypt is not in the hands of Egyptians, and the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, a divine sovereign, is not a legitimate heir of the ancestors. He is a foreigner. So Carmosa had a simple but complicated decision to make. He could maintain the peace, like many kings of the 16th and 17th dynasties had done before him. Or he could be like Sekenenre or Senebkai, and risk everything on new campaigns into the north. Unfortunately, given the phrases and speeches that he makes on his stela, I don't think Carmosa ever really felt he had a choice. His father had been murdered brutally on the battlefield, and the whole situation with a foreigner ruling most of Egypt was simply intolerable for anyone who wanted to be a legitimate king. So with tradition, military concerns, and religion all playing their part, Carmosa was caught between a rock and a hard place. But at the end of the day, decisions had to be made. Quote, the courtiers troubled his majesty's heart, and he said, As for your counsel against me, he who partitions the land with me will never respect me, nor will the Asiatics aligned with him. I will sail north to engage the Asiatics, and success will come. If he intends to be at ease, well, his eyes will be weeping along with the entire land. End quote. Rightly or wrongly, Carmosa had opted for war, and he immediately set about gathering his army. This was an army serving on land and on river, and it seems to have been quite a cosmopolitan one. Among its members were the usual Egyptian soldiers, sailors, and charioteers. There were also a great many Nubians, of a tribe known as the Medjai. The Medjai show up in a 1999 movie called The Mummy, as sacred guardians of the king. But they are a real group, and they served in the Egyptian army as soldiers and as police. For Carmosa, these Medjai served as the advance guard. They acted as archers on the prows of ships, and as battalions moving ahead of the main troops. They would attack Hyksos' positions and, quote, destroy his places, probably referring to the villages and towns where enemy soldiers could be found in relatively small numbers. With this plan in motion, Carmos could begin his campaign. Quote, I, Carmos, went north because I was strong enough to attack the Asiatics. I went at the command of Amun justified of councils. My valiant army was in front of me like a blast of fire. The troops of the Medjai were on the upper part of our cabins, to seek out the Asiatics and to push back their positions. East and west had their fat, and the army foraged for things everywhere." End quote. The Theban army advanced northward beyond their borders at Kos. They went by river, but disembarked in order to fight. Arriving at a town called Nefrusi, they came against a local prince, Teti, the son of Pepi. These collaborators, if you will, received no parley. Quote, I set out a strong troop of the Magi while I was on the day's patrol against Teti, the son of Pepi, within the town of Nethrusi. I would not let Teti escape while I held back the Asiatics who had withstood Egypt. He made Nefrusi the nest of the Asiatics, and so I spent the night in my boat, with my heart happy. When day broke, I was on him as if it were a falcon. When the time of breakfast had come, I attacked him. I broke down his walls, I killed his people, and I made his wife come down to the riverbank. 
It did not take us long until its town was hemmed in. Their fortress was deserted when I approached it. Their horses had fled inside, along with the border patrol, and those who had spent the night in the valley. Their property was ours for the taking. End quote. The town of Nethrusi was, in the big scheme of things, relatively minor. But Carmosa makes such a big deal out of it that you almost wonder if this was the first Theban victory in a long time. We don't know how far north Sir got before he died, but it seems fairly likely that both he and his predecessor Seneb Kai had only made it a short way to the north before they were defeated by the Hyksos. So Carmosa and his army were pretty flush with confidence, and at this point he decided to send a letter to the king of Avaris, detailing his intentions and telling him what was in store. His message was nothing but confidence. Quote, I, Carmosa, said, Bad news is in your town. You are driven back in the presence of your army, and your authority is restricted. Inasmuch as you, in your capacity as overlord, have made me a chief, now you must beg for the block where you shall fall. Look behind you. My troops are a threat behind you. The mistresses of Avaris will not conceive. Their hearts will go still in the midst of their bodies when the war cry of my troops is heard. End quote. Now, them's fighting words. But Carmosa was talking big. Did the Hyksos king Apepi reply? Well, unfortunately, we don't know, because the stela on which this is carved breaks off at this point. Fortunately, there is a second stela. But this picks up when the war has moved slightly further north, and Carmosa is now attacking a different town. Quote, I put in at the town of Per Jedkin, my heart happy so that I might let Apepi experience a bad time, that Syrian prince with weak arms, who conceives brave things which never come about for him. I put the fleet already equipped in order, one behind the other, in order that I might take the lead, setting the course with my braves. Flying over the river as does a falcon, my flagship of gold at their head, something like a divine being at their front. I put the fleet already equipped in order, one behind the other, so that I could take the lead, setting the course with my braves. I made this mighty transport ship land at the edge of the cultivation, with the fleet behind it. I despoiled the land like the hawk who uproots plants upon the flats of Avaris. End quote. At this point, the Theban army was doing very well for itself, and it's possible that this was now starting to actually get the attention of Hyksos. After all, a couple of raids against a small town were no big deal. But the Thebans were now starting to take down vassals. In other words, they were actually pushing into the Hyksos kingdom, and causing some serious disruption. Carmosa was confident of his success, and made a lengthy speech upon the stela. I won't read it all out, suffice to say that Carmosa was reasonably good with the trash talk. Quote, Does your heart fail, you vile Asiatic? Look, I drink the wine out of your vineyards, which the Asiatics whom I captured have pressed out for me. I have smashed up your rest house, I have cut down your trees, I have forced your women into ship's holds, I have seized your horses, I haven't left a plank to the hundreds of ships of fresh cedar, which were filled with gold and lapis lazuli, silver, turquoise, bronze axes without number, over and above the moringa oil, incense, fat, honey, willow, boxwood, sticks, and all their fine woods, all the products of Asia. I have confiscated all of it. End quote. If Carmosa is being honest here, and there's every chance that he's exaggerating, 
then the campaigns to the north were phenomenally as successful in terms of loot. The Hyksos controlled the trade routes up to Syria, Palestine, and the Mediterranean. Their vassals, although not as rich as the kings, would have had considerably more valuable loot than the Thebans did. So for Carmosa and his soldiers, this was a bit of a field day. But the Hyksos were far from beaten. Carmosa had taken, what, two towns? Against a kingdom controlling all of the north? Hardly a dent, really. And Arpepi, sitting pretty in Avaris, still had allies. Quote, At this point I captured one of Arpepi's messengers in the oases upland, as he was going south to Nubia with a written dispatch, and I found on it the following in writing, by the hand of the ruler of Avaris. The son of Re Apepi greets my son, the ruler of Nubia. Do you see what Egypt has done to me? The ruler which is in her midst, Carmos of the Mighty, is pushing me off my own land. Come north, do not hold back. See, he is here with me. There is none who will stand to you in Egypt. See, I will not give him a way out until you arrive. Then we shall divide the towns of Egypt, and the land shall be in joy. Now this was a lucky break. The Egyptians had captured Apepi's messenger, preventing him from sending any communication to the Nubian king down in Kerma. This, more than anything, might have secured Carmosa's victories. It sounds like Carmosa had his entire army with him. Had the Nubians chosen to attack at that moment, it could have been a disaster. So capturing this messenger from the Hyksos was pretty much the best thing that could have happened in the situation and Carmosa could now continue his war in the north, confident that Thebes was still safe. In fact, Carmosa was now in such a good position that he could divide his army. He attacked several towns at the same time, and sent battalions into the deserts to the east and west in order to secure the desert trade routes. Effectively, he was pushing Theban territory further north, securing everything he could along the way. Quote, I took possession of both deserts and the southland, and the rivers likewise, and no way was found for the enemy to escape. I dispatched my strong battalion, which was on the march, to destroy Jesjes while I was in Seiko, to prevent any enemy forces being behind me. So I fared south, confident and happy, destroying all the enemy who were in my way. End quote. So that was Carmos' mighty victory in the north. But all good things must come to an end, and the fighting season was now winding down. The army needed to return to its fields, in preparation for the harvest. We don't know if Carmosa instituted new vassals in the north in place of the ones he had kicked out, but it seems pretty likely. Either way, it was now time for him and his army to return home. It had been a successful year, and he could be proud. So the third year of Carmosa's reign came to an end, and what a year it had been. The Hyksos had been thoroughly pushed back, then their vassals punished for collaboration. The army had taken loot, captives, and honour, and showed its formidable strength in war. Nubia had even been kept out of the war, and the Theban kingdom was more secure than at any point in recent memory. Things were looking up. Sure, the defeats of both Sekenenre the Brave and Senebkai of Abydos were not yet fully revenged, but this was a good start. A very good start, actually. Carmosa and his army boarded their ships around July, and headed back south. Quote, 
What a happy home trip for the ruler, life, prosperity and happiness, with his army ahead of him. I moored on home soil during the season of inundation. Everyone was bright-eyed, the land had abundant food, the riverbank was resplendent. Thebes was festive, women and men had come out to see me, every woman hugged her neighbour, no one was tearful. End quote. I can only imagine how spectacular a party this must have been. Carmosa paints a lovely picture of victory. All across Thebes there would have been rejoicing, and most especially in the temples. Early in his stela, Carmosa attributed one of the reasons for war to the influence and command of the great god, Amun-Re. So, with victory achieved in the god's name, it was only appropriate that he give credit where credit was due. Quote, Amun's incense burned in the sanctuary of Karnak, at the place where it is said, Receive good things, as Amun grants the sword to the son of Amun, life, prosperity, happiness. The enduring king, Waj Kepare, son of Re, Kamosa the mighty, given life, who subdued the south and drove back the north, who seized the land by main force, given life, stability, dominion, and happiness, with his car like Ray forever and ever. End quote. Well, amen. This is the last we hear of Carmosa, because the stela comes to its end. The victory was Carmosa's last great achievement, because unfortunately, he died relatively soon afterwards. Now, you might be tempted to cry assassination, which would be a very good way for Arpepi to get back at his foe. But we actually have no idea how Carmosa died. Normally, we could just look at the mummy, like with Siken and Ray Tao. After all, we are now entering a period where most of the royal bodies are accounted for. Unfortunately, this is not really the case with Carmosa. His mummy is lost. Or perhaps I should say that his mummy wasn't lost, but now it is. Carmosa's body was uncovered by accident late in the 19th century. But the people who found it, outside of its coffin, did not realise its significance and left the mummy where it was on a pile of debris in a disused tomb. By the time Egyptologists acquired the coffin and realised who its owner was, it was too late. The body was lost. Which is, sadly, all too common a story. Carmosa is simply one fatality among many. Despite this unfortunate accident of fate, Carmosa is remembered as a successful king. He made the first great inroads against the Hyksos kingdom, and the war in the north was his greatest achievement. Unfortunately, he did not live long enough for a second, dying around 1555 BCE, about year five of his reign. Power now came to his younger brother, a young boy named Armosa. Armosa was about ten when Carmosa died, and so the transition of power was handled by none other than the Queen Ahotep who as matriarch of the family, and generally formidable personality, kept the court going, just as she had at the death of Sekenenre. For now, we come to the end of this episode. Next week, the reign of Armosa begins in earnest, as the young king, assisted by his mother, leads the final war of liberation against the Hyksos. This will be a war on land and on river, and we tell the story from the perspective of both the king and a young soldier fighting in the front lines who lived to tell the tale.
What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.